This is Drinks with Tony, episode 77, the hot 77. That sounds like an AM radio station. It reminds me of feathered hair. Anyway, I don't usually talk before an episode and because uh, I like to get into it. I like the recording to speak for itself or whatever I feel like I know about the consumption of audio speakies. But here we are, most of us in our homes, looking at lots of toilet paper and hot sauce. Um... Oh God, I wrote a joke about having, not having toilet paper and then my pants hanging to my ankles and hop squatting from door to door in my building. Um, that's kind of funny. All right. Anyway, so I've listened to Mark Marin once in a while. And I know the urge to fast forward the damn thing 20 minutes because cats, I got cats. You know, when I had Obama on the show, you know, oh, I was talking to Joe Rogan. Oh, my furry, feral cats. The cats. You know, the cats, the cats, the cats. So, see, it's hard for me to be intimate unless I'm talking to someone on the show. What I'm doing is giving you context to the interview because this was taped a few weeks ago in Atwater Village. And I love chatting with Robert. Fantastic fella. We teach together at UCLA Extension. And that is the context. I also wanted to say a lot of authors who have worked years, some a decade, even longer on their first books, their first novels. They're coming out this quarter and they've had to stop all publicity, tours, etc. All the parties that were coming up. So think about that. You finally have a book deal. You're living your dream and you're in the, you're, you're about to take the world by storm with like this thing you've crafted these 300 pages and boom, here we are. So, uh, but in the coming weeks I have Cara Black and Alia Volt. We taped, uh, or last year actually, uh, had, so we can get ahead of their book events and they had to cancel their tours and book events, but we'll have their tapes are coming up soon. And essentially, you know what? We all have to adjust. I'm adjusting how drinks with Tony will go when I have to, when I can't not interview in person. And that really sucks. Um, yeah. Cause if I can't cuddle you, then what's the use of doing a podcast <laughs> anyway? So yeah, you kind of get it right. Right. Okay. What the drinkers? Hey, what the drinkers? I'm getting too Marin. I'm out. Hi, this is Robert Annecy and you're listening to drinks with Tony. Get on the drinks with Tony show. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Robert Annecy. He's the author of The Gloves, A Boxing Chronicle, and also The Lost Bohemia, Scenes from a Life, Scenes from a Life of Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Williams... What? <laughs> Hi, Robert. Tony, thanks for having me on the show. Oh, thanks for joining me. So, um, why, can't, why couldn't I say Williamsburg? I was going to say Williams Jerds. Because you haven't been drinking for a month? <laughs> I'm on day 26 of zero. Congratulations. Are we supposed to congratulate each other? I think it's when I start drinking daily again, and then we, I get to 26. Then, then that's... Much more fun to hang out with. <laughs> is, is that true? Am I more fun to hang out with when I'm buzzed? I've, actually, when, when... I've never... It's only been coffee with us, so you know we have whole realms to explore. Let's do acid sometime. I've never done acid in my life. Let's Are you just kidding. I've never done acid. No. Any any psychedelics? No. Mushrooms? No. E? No. Oh, you 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 and your lady should take some E right. together. Not that I've ever tried it because I would never use no. any illegal substances. But it's it's pretty magical. You've heard, you've heard things. I've heard things. Yeah. 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 It's really oh. It, 
you know, the third eye opens up, dude. I mean, <laughs> okay. okay. The um, wait. Now, do you still train boxing-wise? It it seems like you do. I'm up into. I mean, it since my daughter was born, not so much. I went from the problem with boxing is that the the stakes are so high. You're getting at at the very least, you're getting punched in the head regularly. So unless you're, you know, really immersed in it and, and training yourself up to a level where you're really comfortable in the ring and really, and really secure, it's, it's too dangerous. It's, I mean, you're going to get, if you're not, if you come in half step and you're going to get wrecked, you know, and I basically transit, and besides the fact that I, in theory, I make my living using my brain. Um, not the boxers don't, but I'd like to have all my... I'm not getting paid to get hit in the head, and I'd like to keep all my marbles and, and remember seeing my daughter grow up. So I transitioned out of boxing into Brazilian jiu-jitsu stuff and then in, in, in a little MMA, but I really, really loved uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I, grappling contact sports it's just you know if if you like contact and you like the physicality Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu has a lot of the benefits of boxing except you're not getting punched in the head although the only time I got my I've gotten my nose broken in my life despite you know having boxed a 10-year period where I boxed seriously was doing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu where you know some rookie panicked and headbutted me and that that was interesting it's like it's like someone turns on a, a fountain of blood in your you know somewhere up somewhere up in your septum and it just comes spraying out and then you so I you know when it happened I so I covered my nostrils and then the blood just starts pouring down your throat and my nose was like under my eye but I'd heard a friend you know a friend of mine who had like his nose broken eight or nine times he's like oh I just pop it back in place myself. And I was like, I went into the bathroom, like, looked at my nose. I'm like, it looks kind of cool like that, but that's probably not a long-term look that I want. So I just snapped it back into place. And when I actually did go to the doctor, they said that was a good idea because once the tissues start swelling and the inflammation and they start to set a little, then it's really hard to get back and they usually have to break it again to get it, to position it correctly. So I saved myself some money. And it's a misery. It's all about saving money, misery, and doctor's visits on all of this stuff, I think. It's, a, it's the story of life. You know, if you can do that, you're, you're in a good place. So what, what got you in the boxing as a kid? I mean, what, what, what started that fire with you? Well, I wouldn't, you know, my boxing, you know, I lived in a relatively upscale, urban, but urban neighborhood, and... Uh, People didn't really box anymore. There was, you know, karate was big. Uh, my uncle had been in the 101st Airborne and boxed, and he had a punching bag in his garage, which I'm sure he hadn't used for many years. Too busy, you know, drinking. And I didn't really get serious about boxing until I was in my 20s. But, you know, there was that had a lot of anger still have anger management issues that I'm struggling with and 
the first time, you know, I started sparring, one of my trainers, my first trainer, you know, I'd never been in the ring before. He's like, before my first sparring session, he said, this, you know, this is the real test. You know, some, some people, you know, they get punched in the face. They're like, what the fuck am I doing here? And they get out of the ring. But a bo- to be a boxer, you almost have to like it. You know, it, it doesn't really bother you. And in a way, it gives you... What I, what I always felt is like it gives me permission to punch the other guy in the face. And I was, you know, to be able to do that, I was willing to suffer in, in turn. I mean, growing up, I was fighting all the time and in trouble all the time, you know playing hard contact sports but I was small so you know there was a ceiling to that and boxing kind of gave me an outlet for that rage that came from you know having a crap dad and uh, maybe genetics so uh, and then um, and then you went on the the track of uh, becoming a writer as well so what was when did you start taking writing seriously a lot earlier than boxing and Probably by, you know, when I went to college, I knew that's what I wanted to do. And it took a long time to get to be even decent, like to be able to, I don't, it's so hard to become just an adequate writer. And people don't understand that. Or even, you know, people are like asking me, like the boxer I'm writing the book about now, James Tooney's like, you ain't done with that book yet? I'm like, it's been, first of all, James, it's been two months. Second of all, you want this book to be good, right? Like, I've just barely stopped interviewing. They think there's this, like, they think there's this, you know, just easy transition from your head to the page, and it just spills right out. Now, that's only true if you're Stephen King. But it's 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 just a constant humiliation. And this the ghostwriting gig. So how how long did you interview? Like how I'm much? Oh, you're not, oh you're writing with him. Well, I'm writing his his. Oh, okay. You know, it's like a, a look at his life, yeah. along with some you know first person, uh, present day stuff. Like I've spent a lot of time hanging with, hanging around with him. I went and spent a week and a half in. He's from Ann Arbor, Michigan, actually. James Lights Out Tony, who's one of the greatest boxers of the last half century. And I went and stayed with him at his mom's house. And, you know, just like, you know, spending day. The, be- the way you really get to know someone is, is by, you know, living in that proximity for them for an extended period of time. And so that's, that's going to be in the book also. Oh, cool. Oh, and what, what did he feel like having you around? What was, what, did you vibe that there was, it was a, uh, you know, what, like day one you meet each other everything's congenial day four been, you know I'd been going up to his gym a lot and, and covering him there and you know inevitably after the gym he would drag me to the local cigar bar he's a big cigar aficionado I mean this is a man who's made millions and millions of dollars spent most of it but he has a taste for the finer things and it's really funny this being LA the cigar and the, the kind of people who smoke cigars We'd be in there and, you know, it would be like, you know, the the demimond of Hollywood. Like, I'd be I'd be seeing with James, like, that guy over there, that old guy. James, you can barely understand a word he says. He's got a really gravelly voice. And you, you, you have to learn how to understand, Dave. But 
it's like uh, it's like Louis Armstrong times ten, but he's like that's that's he points to this old old man. He's like that's that's Freddy Krueger. That's the original Freddy Krueger, and this ninety year old guy who was a stunt man in Hollywood for decades and decades, written a book, written his own memoir, and you know played Freddy Krueger in the early films, and he. Uh, or, you know, you're sitting there and you're like, I, I remember that guy. That's a Scott Bio, you know, like coming in against... It's just like this weird, you know, middle-aged man who are successful enough to smoke $400 cigars, hanging out and just shooting the shit and watching TV, and that's their getaway. But I, I've had enough of cigar bars. Yeah, did, now, did you, did, were you able to smoke cigars too, and did you have to pony up your own dime for like a $400 cigar? I am not a cigar smoker, so no. I have lots of bad habits, but cigars are not one of them. And it, I, I can scarcely afford another bad habit. Yeah. <laughs> um, and w- so his gym's in Los Angeles. You were you you were yeah, covering him like ass deep in the valley. Um, I call it boxing Valhalla because you'll be there, and first of all, there's all it. It's actually Buddy McGirt's gym, or. It, who was another great um, welterweight fighter of the 80s and 90s and, you know, world champion, and he, who became a trainer and a very successful trainer. So there are all these, like, all this boxing royalty is coming in and out all the time. And it's, it's really weird. You know, these guys are, they're both famous in the world of boxing, but a lot of them have also suffered really hard times because, you know, from the backgrounds they came from, the... the the damage they took as fighters, you know, bad financial decisions. So it's an interesting mix of people who are both heroes of the boxing world and also at the same time they're dealing with, you know, like this guy just got out of prison or this other guy is, you know, um, is on, you know, is is, uh, shot someone last week or... It's, it's just a fascinating little cultural milieu, but any boxing fan would come in there and say, what, what are all these guys doing there? And it's nice, and that kind of environment, it's nice to see, you know, you're catching them at work, basically. So even the ones who aren't fighting anymore, mostly they're around gyms because they're still training or... Yeah, yeah. There's, in, the, in the middle of the valley, like what, the last place you would expect. Northridge. Northridge, like... Boxing, not exactly a boxing hub. Right, exactly. The um, what's and what's cool about that is you can go there and like watch these guys that um, you're a fan of, like almost the art of boxing, and you can you and you can just sit sit there and watch them train. And I wish we could do that with writers. Like we're fans of like authors, so we could just go to some place and watch them write. And it's just like it doesn't work the same way, and it just be ugly. Be ugly. They. Yeah. They'd be uncomfortable. Right. You'd be bored out of your mind. Yeah. But it's you know the the great thing about James being around James Tony and what people don't understand is about boxing is it's it's in its way it's it's an art form. Like you you watch a great fighter and it's a perform you know it's it's a performance and some of the things like and. The greatest fighters are student, you know, they're students of the sports history, and there are all these incredible little details that they've memorized and conditioned into their bodies and that they can use. And it's it's a kind of watching, you know, you're watching a great artist at work, and it's, it's transcendent, plus the intensity and, and what's at stake. You know, you're, you're trying to beat another human being unconscious. 
Yeah. It's, there's nothing like it, really. Yeah. We were talking earlier about uh, how many concussions you've had in different, because <laughs> you, you've boxed all over the world, right? Um, boxed in Germany, yeah. boxed in the States. Yeah, that's like all over the world to me. <laughs> but, I mean, I have had more concussions than that. I mean, yeah. the, first had a concussion when I was seven or eight. A friend was, you know, a friend and I were fucking around, screwing around. And uh, I was looking back, he was chasing me, and I ran head first into a tree. And then, you know, knocked out for a second. And a couple hours later, I was riding my bike, and I, like, puked in the in the street and I'm like you know had to go get a, like a brain scan and stuff but since then you know boxing inevitably you're gonna have even if you don't get knocked out there you know one the one time I did get knocked out and got knocked down uh, I got up pretty fast and I was ready to go out for the next round but thank god my trainers stopped it but leaving the gym you know, 20 minutes, half an hour later, 40 minutes later, I realized that I, I didn't know where I lived. Like, the, I had recently moved, like, a month or two earlier, but I, I could, I'm like, where? I know I don't live, you know, on 169th Street anymore. I moved, but it had been just, like, blown out of my head. It was, I mean, that was disturbing. Like, you can be fully conscious and not have, like, some significant you know, obvious piece of information, you know. So that was, what, was that in New York? That was in New York. Yeah. And so you were in, you lived in Brooklyn for years, yeah? I lived in Brooklyn for 16 years, 17 years. I lived in, in Williamsburg, right on the strip on North 8th and Bedford before there was a strip. You know, it was, you know, the first, the L train is the Williamsburg train and my stop was the first stop and my apartment was a block away from the subway. So for me at 27, it was just like, oh, I can get a cheap apartment. It's close to the city. I didn't care. It was a skeezy neighborhood. It, you know, it was right. It had a great waterfront that was, you know, just like wild. And there were all these abandoned industrial. But I was like, this is a great place to live. And, you know, my rent was $500 a month for, you know, the floor of a, of a house. But, you know... It, it didn't stay a secret for long and you know watching it transform was, was one of the most astonishing things I've ever seen I mean just the entire neighborhood was erased and the high rises were put up in, in its place yeah. I, you know I got to see it a few months ago and I, I, I really liked where I was in Brooklyn and kind of Bushwick and uh, Williamsburg areas and it's just it, and I love the L train. I was on the L train. And it's just like it's you know it's crowded as hell if you're going in, out in Manhattan. But it just it was, there was a beauty to it. I didn't. I was just like, oh man, the energy here is just cool. Well, now you know it's there. It was you can't imagine what it was like. It was totally desert. It was you know there were neighborhoods in San Francisco that right. were um, south, like South of Market in the '90s. You'd be like, "Are you kidding me? This is going to be something?" No, this is a wasteland, and now it's every you know, the, the, the ballparks there, everything's there. Yeah, the interesting thing about Williamsburg is that it was completely depopulated. Even though you're right next to the city, you can you know you walk a quarter mile, and you're you know you're on the East River, and you're looking at you know you're looking at the towers of Midtown and and Wall Street. 
it was half abandoned. Like it had been, you know, a white working class neighborhood, Italian, Polish, and as the factories closed down and people moved out, and and for 20 years, no one filled their, you know, no one filled the. The former industrial buildings, no one filled those apartments, so it was like this eerie ghost town, except that, you know, like industrial neighborhoods throughout, you know, the northeastern United States and the Midwest, except in the case of Williamsburg, it was right next to Manhattan. So as soon as the city started to have the economic recovery, you know, and people started getting priced out of the East Village, that was the next obvious destination. And it's, it's, it's so, I, I, people like, for me, like coming from San Francisco and like, you know, living, you live in Oakland, Oakland feels like a state away. But when you're like, when you're on that L train, it's just like, you're, it's so fast. You're all of a sudden you're at Manhattan stops immediately. It doesn't even feel like you've been underwater. Yeah. First Avenue to, to yeah. Bedford Avenue is eight minutes, seven minutes. It's at quick the most, yeah. at the most. Yeah, it's, it's, if it's running, if the train is running. Oh, is, now is there issues on that? Because when I was there, it was it was uh, having um, off and on during the weekend, but during the week it was like clockwork. Oh, okay, I, I don't know. They were going to close it for two years because they had to do a major renovation on the line. I don't know how. What you know, obviously was a, a you know a lot of people with people who live in Williamsburg now have a lot more clout than the people who lived there before. So they might have been able to divert that yeah, even the rent even the rents there because i was just kind of you know spying out a little bit and you know it's you're, you're gonna pay about 2400 if you want know, a very small one bedroom that's not trash my my i'm sure my old you know my building was uh it was a rear house so it was behind the the there was like a tenement in front and then there was this little cottage behind it three floors three units but I don't think the landlady had been paying rent had been paying uh, taxes on it and so it wasn't even in the you know the city registry and it was you know I paid her cash and um, but oh this since we had this is that's the subject of the second book the Williamsburg book Last Bohemia that's living there and watching this transformation yeah. and, it, and it's just there, there were things there was there was a vibe there I went well up in Greenpoint I really liked going to Greenpoint Greenpoint felt um, like my vibe and there was a, there was an outdoor uh, there was an internet radio station that had a DJ and it was just a gravel lot and then they had beer and uh, food there and, and I forget what the place was called but it was in Greenpoint and I'm just sitting there going this feels like the Mission District in San Francisco 20 years ago, right here. Right. Yeah. Well, Greenpoint was a little different because the housing was a little better and it, it was solidly Polish okay. through the 80s and 90s. So it, the gentrification in there, was, it was the turnover was a little slower because there wasn't as much industrial uh, zoning. So they just couldn't, you know, remake the zoning and put up high-rises. They're residential units. So people just got are, got pushed out of there a little slower. Yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, I, I can't stand it anymore. Um, I haven't been back in, since the book came out, so 2014 maybe. 
But it, I mean, I, I feel the whole the same way about all of New York, the way you might feel about San Francisco. It's yeah. It's L.A. has has much more grit, and there's just it's it's not so much uh, you know a millionaire like monoculture as 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 San Francisco particularly has become. I mean, it, it's horrifying. I, mean, I lived in I lived in San Francisco in the early '90s, late '80s, early '90s, and it was it was paradise. Yeah, and, that, and that's why I think people don't get that about LA. Just about how LA is not Santa Monica, and you know, go in, in Hollywood, and that's it. There's there's so much to it, and there's there you could find the grid. It's nice. <laughs> well, it's it's freaking huge for one yeah. thing, right? It's yeah. this. I mean, it's. Land area-wise, I mean, San Francisco is would probably fit in Santa Monica. Or it, yeah. So there's more places to, you know, there's more possibilities. There's more, you know, and there's so many ethnic enclaves. Like I live in Glendale, which is so insanely Armenian. It's, yeah. you know, it's like the Armenian capital. It might be one of the largest Armenian cities in the world. Yeah. Maybe second or third. Yeah. But. It's happening here too, just just more slowly. Like, what does a one bedroom cost here now? What does a studio cost here now? Twenty two hundred, just like an an okay one. So, at a you know, in the East Village or in the Village, I mean, the Village was a a refuge for Bohemians from the twenties into the sixties. The East Village, the same thing from the fifties and sixties into the nineties. Williamsburg's like shelf life was like 10 years you know Bush neighborhoods are basically I mean how, how is it possible anymore to be like a young artist or writer or anything and and find a way to live in the city and yeah. and not have to work so much that you can't do anything else yeah. that's the you know it's the the transformation is is stunning it's, it's funny I was talking to someone um at Trader Joe's the other day and she was saying uh, oh yeah my brother's band's playing tonight I might go see him and I was like oh where at and she's like Pomona and I'm like well that's a trek but then she's like oh no we're from Pomona and I'm like oh my god because the music scene in Pomona actually like for punk rock and stuff is pretty rad the bands that are coming out of there and they're doing backyard parties and I've never been to Pomona in my life but Pomona's on my radar is like Pomona band and I'm like oh okay there's it, those might be the next seat you know the next great places 20 years from now who knows but, it, but you're in Pomona I yeah, mean exactly. but people would have said but you're in Williamsburg or you're in South Market in the city you yeah. were close oh, to the city yeah. you had access to yeah. all those cultural artifacts the museums the the libraries now it's it's basically like a club for the uber rich I mean what are you going to drive for two hours to hang out or to I mean, it's it's depressing. You know, I feel bad for kids because we. I feel like we caught the last like fat days in the in the you know in those amazing in those big American cities where yeah. people wanted didn't want to live there, and so we could. Yeah, I keep forgetting about the access thing because like even where I live in LA, it's right by Los Feliz. I have access to a lot. I don't, I, don't, I don't have to be in traffic at night if I don't want, or during the day if I don't want to. There's access. Even Glendale, there's access. 
but you get farther out like that, there's less access. And even in the Bay Area, if you live in Richmond or you live in Fremont, the access is there, but it's taking a lot of time to get to the city or to Oakland. It's the, but the access of being seven minutes away on a subway, completely different story. No, you, it's the, you start to get, all you have is the homogeneity of the strip mall experience. Unless you're, you know, some there are amazing, you know, Chinese neighborhoods or where it's like super ethnic, the, the, the signs are written in the, you know, in, in Chinese, you, so there's, there's that fascinating otherness of it, but it's not, you're not able to connect to the, the social and cultural matrix of, of, you know, Western society. People aren't building like museums and in Pomona or well I mean they have universe they have something but there's it's it's so decentered that where is it's it's not going to inspire you where there's not going to be enough there's not going to be a uh, you know like a a critical mass of artists or people to generate and interesting culture because they can't afford it. You know, I, I feel like there's an exodus to the desert, uh, like Joshua Tree and, you know, where Pioneer Town is and all that. It seems like I, every once in a while another friend's like bought something in the desert and now is living there. I don't, I don't know if that's going to be a thing 10 years from now or not. It's, it's just, it's really far away. A lot of the people who are going there are going to escape. So... It feels like it's older people. It's not like I want to, you know, I'm a 16 year old. I'm gonna go to Joshua Tree, and and I don't think, it, I mean, yeah, there's there's a quirkiness there that wasn't there. It's also that's also getting expensive too. Jay, I mean, I've I've done a lot of climbing out there, and you just every visit, it's just like, wait, and the, the lines are longer, and the, it's like where do we go now? I don't know. <laughs> You have to start your own commune, yeah. and the people you like have come live on the compound and <laughs> start a cult, and then we could just create our own rules, brainwash people, and I don't know, uh, abuse our power. Yeah, I'd, I'd like you know fourteen or fifteen teenage wives to you know hang on my every word and right. and then to, to make garments that sell for millions and millions of dollars and give me all the money and I could smoke four hundred dollars cigars. There's one problem I. I don't have charisma, so it's probably going to be not going to happen. Right, right. I know. I'm getting long in the tooth, too. I don't know if I can attract the Well, yeah. I mean, it's like everyone's dream, really. Every man's dream, really, is to be Charlie Manson. I mean, come on. Let's be serious. Oh, so, <laughs> Is it really? No. It's, it, I, I couldn't fathom wanting to be that. I just, ew, uh, it grosses me out. He, he was, I mean, the sad thing about... You know, the, the naivete of the flower power generation is, is they understood, you know, there's that great rejection of 50s American conformity, but with the, with the baby boomers being in such numbers, they, they were, you know, there, was, there were a lot of, you know, the, the 50 strict cultural strictures were 
cut away, torn away, but there were so many of these kids wandering around that it was just like, for, for people like Manson, it was like, who, and the kids knew that they didn't want what their parents had, but they didn't know what they wanted. And they had so little guidance and, you know, and the drug, you know, valorizing uh, LSD or whatever, they, they were just like sheep for, you know, certain a certain kind of wolf. And yeah. that's, that's the cult sp- sprung up in the mid-70s, the Scientologist and the, all of, you know, what else uh, happened in, a lot of stuff happened in L.A. L.A. feels like, a, yeah... There was a great documentary about a cult leader I forget, in the early 70s. They, they did music, but you don't have to... The, the leader of the cult, I'm sure he was older than you, and I know you're worried about possibly, you know, age being a recruiting issue. Right, right. I, I'm, worried about, I'm worried about ageism and, and being a leader of a cult. But he, you know, he was perfectly fine being a cult leader. He had a big, you know, the big white beard. Oh, and oh the source, the source family. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, did you see that documentary? Yeah, I've, I had Isis, uh, his first wife, on the show when I, uh, when I was in San Francisco doing drinks with Tony. Oh, did she do a, she wrote a memoir or? Um, she was part of the production of the documentary. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was, I mean, you got to give props to that guy going out on the hang glider when, he didn't even, he'd never written it before and everyone was like but you don't know how to do it and for 15 minutes he he had his moment of glory but it was like Icarus too close to the sun yeah, yeah. The, um, and the Source family had a restaurant in LA it was like a vegan restaurant it was kind of like a cafe gratitude of the 70s and Woody Allen um, I think it was in Annie Hall actually used that as part of his um in one scene to show the uh, how awful California culture was. I don't know if you remember that. I didn't know it was there. I re- yeah, yeah. But how did we get off the subject of cults and building our cult? Oh, we have to talk about that off mic because if people know that we're putting a cult together, it's going to be harder to get recruits. Do you th- well, how are we going to advertise? Well, we got we we can't say it's a cult. You have to kind of say, you know, hey, come, we have this nectar. You know, and we got to come up with whatever the nectar is. That brings them in, and then we slowly brainwash them. You don't advertise, hey, you know, you're going to join this cult and work for nothing, and well, you're going to lose years of your life. Well, maybe, maybe it can be a spiritual martial arts cult. I can, re- I can. You have, you know, your own background. Yes. You're, you're per, you, you know how to get people marching in the right direction, right. and I can do the fitness right. aspect of it, and then you know, just keep them training all day, and they'll be too tired to ask questions. And and overtrain them, so they so the, yeah so they're too tired to beat us up. When they realize that everything's gone down, they'll just be too tired. And that's what you want to do. You want to beat up the brain and you want to beat up the body, and then they're they're like putty in your hands. It's a, it's it's nice to think about, isn't it? Okay, can we take a? I think our first order of business for uh, this cult is to make them take creatine. Is that is that is that the? Kratom, what, what, what is that? Because we're sitting here with a, big, uh, with a big bag of powder in front of us, and it's not a drug. Kratom is... Well, just to, just to get the record straight, the person who introduced me to Kratom is my brother, who is a, a federal cop. So it's perfectly legal, although... 
in the last like ten, last five years, I think like it's six or seven states made it illegal. Largely, I think because the the drug companies don't like the competition, so they've been they've been spreading scare stories. Kratom, basically, kratom is uh, a plant that's been used in traditional uh, medicine in Southeast Asia for thousands of years. Uh, it, I mean, to I mean to people who are into like alternative medicine, alternative theory. I mean, it's like they know it, like you know, you know, white rice and and steak, but. It was particularly used in southern Thailand where the, the guys who would work in the rice paddies, the agricultural workers or the peasants, you know, used it to fend off heat and, the, you know, the heat and exhaustion. And what, I would compare it to a mixture of coffee and opiates. It is both analgesic, it numbs pain, it's a stimulant, yeah. and uh, it has some of those like opiate, like drifty, you know, like dreamy qualities. It's actually related to the coffee plant. When the British, during the Opium War, the British were not happy that they couldn't peddle opium in, in Thailand because, it, I mean, it grows wild there all over the place. So they forced the Thai government to make it illegal. It's still illegal in Thailand, but it's, it's, it's impossible. It's like, it's as if there were pot plants growing on every corner and you tried to make smoking pot illegal. So it became, you know, it's caught on in the West in the last 20 years. Uh, for a long time it was used by, uh, you know, opiate addicts, heroin addicts to get off heroin because it, it has some of the same, some of this, I guess it hits some of the same, uh, what are they called, uh, receptors in the brain. Uh, and people have used it for that. It's, it comes in dozens of different strains that have more, some are more you know, soothing effects, some are more stimulant effects. You know, green is a, a stimulant, version red is a more like dopey version but on the bag it has the different strains so yeah. what strain is this i believe this is the eight and one so this is a proprietary blend by the uh, company of eight probably just like the eight the eight ones that weren't selling in their warehouse that they mixed together but uh what was i going to say about it yeah i mean it's I would say it is addictive, but only inaddictive insofar as the way coffee is addictive. Like, there have been so many times I've run out in the six or seven years that I've used it, and two days, three days, you know, you have a headache, or, you know, you have trouble, a little trouble sleeping one night. My brother said he had insomnia for a month. I don't know how that's possible, but it's... So to get off it is not a big deal anymore. Probably less than coffee because I don't know if I could stop drinking coffee. Um, But as it's become more popular, it's come under federal attention. And they want to 
they want to classify it as a Schedule One, with yeah, right up there, you know, like right up there with heroin and and psychedelics, which is nuts too, and. And that's probably big pharma just coming in, going, "Oh, we need to we need to synthesize this so we can make money off of it." And well, you can get extracts. I only take the. I mean, it, it would be nearly impossible to overdose on this, to eat enough to 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 have a fatal dose. You would. It's it. This powder it's nasty. So I can only stomach enough to just to do what I need needed to do. Um, but, you know, so now in the States, thousands and thousands of people are using it. And state by state, you know, the pressure is on. The feds have scheduled it to be banned a half dozen times in the last few years. And it keeps being, you know, it keeps being pushed back because it's ridiculous that it, but it's, I can't help but think, I, I actually know for a fact, I've been reading some articles that Big Pharma is actually, Concerned that they, you know, they're in keeping people from taking their drugs. Uh, but it's fantastic. I mean, I have a lot of friends who only take it now and again. My, uh, you know, my brother's ex-wife is, you know, she's a vegan chef. She runs a vegan catering company. She's like, I don't really like it, but I was sick, you know, in doing a job, and for three days. I took it and it was like I wasn't sick. You know, wow. it. It all. I wonder if it helps me keep me from getting sick. Uh, you know, there the alcohol. There are so many alkaloids, and who knows what the properties are. But it's pretty fantastic. I give it the two thumbs up. Well, it's funny. I mean, you could uh, caffeine's uh, coffee's a poison too. If you have too much coffee, you're dead. It's. I mean, it, but they can't concentrate it that much. In our, you know. ask, ask Balzac, Henri de Balzac, the great, the great French novelist. He his method of writing. So you might want to jot this down. Is he would start writing about you know like eight o'clock at night. He would eat. He wouldn't drink coffee. He would eat coffee grounds. Straight. He would just eat coffee grounds. And write, you know, get himself up to where he needed to be. When, oh, he would also, if he had like a dramatic scene coming up, he would masturbate himself to the point of orgasm just to give himself more, but not, you know, go over the edge. And then uh, if he needed to like cut the edge, he would smoke opium. He, uh, and then at like, he would go to bed at like four and then wake up, you know, in the afternoon. A lot of times he couldn't go outside because he was in debt and there was a law in France that you couldn't arrest people who were in their homes but if they caught you in the street they could arrest you and bring you to debtor's prison so he could only oh they could only arrest you after be in the day in daylight so he would only go out at night because that was the only set and then he would come home and, and start the process again but he died they're pretty sure of coffee poisoning when in his early 50s but you know he wrote like over 90 novels in like 15 years so is it worth it you you know that you make the call you know i i'd rather live and not write i mean i'm not i'm not have to write but i I don't need that much production i'd rather i'd rather live to a solid 100 i don't know i want to know how this story ends but in my life but i the ball you won't be there to see it so i don't how about if 
the story doesn't end. That would be my, you know, it's right. like a, a cereal. It just keeps going, like, right. or like uh, Peanuts. It's 50 years later, Snoopy's still looking good on top of that doghouse. <laughs> you say that like he's a sex symbol. <laughs> Peanuts, I mean, Snoopy, come on. Yeah. Who doesn't want to fuck Snoopy? I mean, <laughs> well, everyone, yeah, no one in their right mind would turn that shit down. Robert, thanks for coming on Drinks with Tony, man. Tony, it's been a pleasure. I appreciate your patience and uh, looking forward to doing this again. Robert Annecy on Drinks with Tony. Check out his books, Last Bohemia, Scenes from the Life of Williamsburg, and The Gloves, A Boxing Chronicle. And since you have some time on your hands, I'm an excellent book coach. And uh, so go to TonyDuchesne.com and click on the classes link for upcoming free workshops as well as one-on-one options. That's TonyDuchesne.com for upcoming classes, free workshops. And I'm going to do some free online workshops as well since our library workshops are temporarily on hold. Thanks for listening to Drinks with Tony. I'll see you next week.